2: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
1: Hey, welcome to
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time for a classic episode from The Vault. This was part one of our exploration of the Voynich Manuscript, published on September 3rd, 2019. Yeah,
1: this is a great one. This is a mystery, a cryptic mystery. So join us in this two-parter beginning right now.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey,
1: welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we have a, a conundrum to consider. A book that cannot be read mm-hmm. by anyone. So it's kind of a, a riddle in the dark, isn't it? Like something that Gollum might ask of, uh, of Bilbo or Bilbo might cunningly ask of Gollum. Uh, right. It's like a, I walk, but I have no feet. I stand, but I have no legs. Though. Yeah. So it, but, but, but it, it is an intriguing kind of riddle. Why can't the book in question be read? So we instantly can think to some of like the tricks of riddles, right? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps the book does not exist. You cannot read a non-existent uh, fictional book such as uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges' The Book of Sand or uh, Arturo Perez Revertas' The Book of Nine Doors to the Kingdom of Shadows. These are books that exist within stories or within other works that have no reality in our world. Likewise, you cannot read a book that no longer exists You know, a book that has become lost, such as, you know, the various destroyed Maya codices or Aristotle's second book of poetics, Mm. uh, uh, which, of course, is a major plot point in Umberto Echoes, The Name of the Rose. Right. Uh, But no, the book uh, that we're talking about here, it is real and it definitely exists. Okay. So that might lead you to the next uh, like level of, uh, of contemplation here. Okay, well, perhaps this book cannot be read because it is forbidden. You know, some powerful librarian or clerk keeps it hidden, perhaps alongside the Ark of the Covenant or something, right? Okay, so like that same Aristotle text, but in The Name of the Rose. Right, yeah, where is somebody just is preventing you from viewing it and reading it? no uh that's not the case with this book because plenty of people have attempted to read it and still attempt to any serious scholar can uh, you know they can actually travel to its physical location and uh, and go through the you know the the, the necessary uh, you know paperwork one presumes can examine it physically and you you the listener can even attempt to read it on the internet or you can uh, you can uh, acquire a printed facsimile uh many of which are very nice i mm-hmm. understand
0: okay i got one well, there are a lot of texts from the ancient world that only exist in some incredibly degraded format, right? Uh, so there, we, we have evidence that a book existed, but you you can't make out what's on the page anymore. Maybe there's only a scrap of it left.
1: Right. It's been destroyed or it's been or perhaps, uh, you know, it's been scraped away and other things have been printed on top of it. Mm-hmm. But no, that's not the case with this book. It's, it's actually quite well preserved for a
0: centuries-old manuscript. Okay, here's one. Maybe you can't read it because it's not made of language.
1: Ah, now that's that's a, that's a clever uh, a, a clever guess. Yeah,
0: a picture book or something. Yeah,
1: but uh, this book actually contains quite a bit of text. Okay, and so that that leads us to the the, the next level of a contemplation here. Okay, then the text must be in a language that is forgotten or a nonsensical representation of language, or perhaps what appears to be language is actually a code
0: for something else. Okay, so there is a book. You can look at it. There is text in it, but for some reason you can't make sense of the text. Right. And in this, we are getting
1: to like the heart of uh, many of the discussions surrounding the book we're going to be uh, discussing today. This book is written in a language or code or some other man- other manner of textual form that no one, at least no one living... Uh, or no one that has lived in uh, in the previous centuries is capable of understanding. In fact, while various people have claimed to have cracked it or translated it or figured out some or all of its secrets, we can state with a fair amount of certainty, as of this recording, and probably, <laughs> of, you know, for uh, you know the duration for the shelf life of this uh, episode no one has been able to read this book, at least not for many, many centuries.
0: At least as far as we know, unless one of these people on like YouTube or Reddit is onto something and nobody's really, uh, nobody's given them credit yet. Yeah. Or somebody's figured it
1: out, but decided not to share it with anyone, uh, which is generally not the case. Generally, there are plenty of people uh, even today that are claiming to have some theory as to, uh, you know, they they have
0: some angle, some end that's going to allow them to, uh, you know, to crack this nut. So what we're talking about today is a real manuscript that exists in the world. Some of you may well have heard of it. Uh, It's actually – I think if you go back, it's something that listeners have requested us to cover in the past. I don't know if we've got a request recently, but – in the years I've been on the show, I know people have written to us asking, yeah. "Like, hey, what's your take on it?" And it is a manuscript known as the Voynich manuscript, or the I, I've also heard it pronounced Vonich but I think we'll say Voynich. Yeah, I, it's let's uh, that. Uh, V-O-Y-N-I-C-H. All right. Well, let's
1: just uh, d- describe it to everyone. Uh, for starters, we should just drive home that uh, again. You can look up a copy of this. It's uh, what it's av- readily available on what ar- archive.org. I yes, believe.
0: exactly. And not only you can, you should. We'll mm-hmm. we'll talk more about the contents of it in a minute. Uh, but maybe we should start with just the base physical reality of what this codex is. It's in the form of a codex, right? So it's not a scroll. It's like a, you know, a, a folding book with pages that you can leaf through.
1: Yeah, it's a roughly 7 by 10 inches. Uh-huh.
0: N- not a huge tome, yeah, right? Yeah, not huge. So a lot of these older books you think of as being this big thing that you put up on a lectern and you open the giant... Uh, cover of it that may be made of wood or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you leaf through the huge pages with their illuminations. But no, this is a little thing, maybe to be cradled in a wizard's knobby fingers. (laughs) Uh, The the precise dimensions I was reading are, uh, it's like 23.5 centimeters by 16.2 centimeters and about five centimeters thick. So it's little.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, what? Uh, what's the, the page count, uh, some, somewhere in the
0: neighborhood of 240 to 270? Uh, yeah, it's so the number of pages existing today, I've seen a couple of different counts of 240 or 246 pages. I think that might be depending on what types of leafs you're counting on the edges, but uh, it's believed that some original pages of this manuscript are lost. It may originally have had around 270 pages or so, but w- we don't know for sure. And these pages are made of parchment, specifically of vellum, which was a common medieval writing material. Parchment means a, a prepared version of an animal skin that was used for writing. Uh, vellum, specifically, I think is calf skin. So these are calf skin pages with ink writing on them. Also, about the pages in this book, we should note that in the format we have it today, some pages appear to be out of order. Uh, so I think at some point, this manuscript was not fully bound. It's bound now, but I think it has been through different binding over the ages. And at some point, it looks like some pages got shuffled out of order. And the version we have it now has pages that look like they're from the wrong section in which they're currently placed. So that's just uh, just how it is as we have it. It's probably due to some owner throughout the centuries making an error and rearranging them when the pages became loose.
1: The text in the book is closely written and free-running alphabetic script uh, the number of letters, uh, I, one source I was looking
0: at said 19 to 28 letters. I don't know if you found a different figure. Yeah, I've seen several different estimates of like 15 to 25 or estimates of 30 letters. I think it's difficult because there are some symbols in there which could be copies of the same letter you've already seen or mm. could be slightly different letters. Uh, and it's hard to tell if you're not working with a known alphabet.
1: Right. And and that's part of it is that like these, for the most part, don't seem to have real counterparts in European letter systems. Right. Um, you know, at first glance, it looks like te- like just standard text that should relate to some uh, European language.
0: But uh, upon closer inspection, uh, things become more difficult. The letters have a lot of fascinating loops in them. Yeah. Like they're they're full of these uh these knots and lassos.
1: And then the illustrations, of course, which I've already alluded to, they has all these these strange line drawings that have been colored in with watercolors mm-hmm. and they consist of you know, plants, possible astrological drawings. Uh, weird uh, illustrations of uh, naked women uh, seeming to bathe or shower
0: in what might be giant plants uh, or other things. We'll we'll get more into what the illustrations represent later on. Mm-hmm. Um now it was uh, it, it's written in ink. I think it has watercolors in it. Yeah, the watercolors yeah, yeah. definitely to color the illustrations, but then the ink
1: itself I read was a, is a brown ink and it seems to have been like an inexpensive ink of the time, so nothing particularly notable.
0: Okay. Now we've already mentioned that it is not a readable document. It is in a language. If it is a language, the language is unknown.
1: Yeah, sometimes called uh, Voynichese. Uh, <laughs> which is just a modern
0: appellation because yeah. we don't know what it is.
1: Yeah, and uh, well, it's something like 170,000 characters in the book. Some, you know, we already talked about the number of alphabetic characters, maybe somewhere in the the range of 25 to 30 uh, depending on what you define as being an, a distinct alphabetic character, uh-huh. and then roughly what thirty five thousand strings of characters of varying length, which can be interpreted as words. Yeah, th-
0: these are usually thought of as words, whether it, by the you know cryptographers who look at this. There are something like 35,000 or like 37,000 words in it. They might not correlate to real words. Mm-hmm. Now,
1: where, you will, where will you find this book now? Uh, well, you'll find it in the United States. Yeah. It's, uh, we'll get into the, 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 the history of the book that brought it to the United States, but it is currently housed at the Beneki Rare Book Room at Yale, uh, New Haven, Connecticut.
0: Yeah, so it's in a library at Yale. And it is open to being looked at by scholars. I I remember I read a a couple of sources talking about how later in his life Umberto Eco went to view it
1: personally. Yeah, he was visiting the library. It's the only book in the library that he asked to view. And uh, yeah, you can find
0: photos of him, uh, Umberto Eco, uh, reading or well looking at the book and of course it's a perfect thing for umberto Eco to show interest in oh, yeah. If you've read the name of the rose you know his love for mysterious manuscripts of unknown medieval origin and that gets to one of the real mysteries of this text Th- this text is one of the great standing mysteries of uh, i don't know i guess of medievalism of uh, uh of of linguistics of cryptography it, it's just this wonderful enigma that's still out there and part of the enigma is we don't know its actual origin we we pick up with it in history at a certain point mm-hmm. where we we know where it first arrived and was recorded but we don't know who made it or how why they made it or how they made it
1: right yeah uh, for, for the longest there was also no carbon dating of the book So estimates uh, used to range, uh, you know,
0: usually people were saying 15th century or so, uh, some were saying 13th century. And I think there's a reason for that because it was originally attributed to the English monk and philosopher Roger Bacon, you know, of course considered by many to be one of the fathers of modern science. And since Roger Bacon lived in the 13th century, if he had written it, this would place its origin in the 13th century. But I don't think any modern scholars actually believe Roger Bacon wrote it. Uh, and later radiocarbon dating would prove that.
1: Right. And we'll we'll get back to the, the Roger Bacon connection in a bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in 2009, the vellum that it's printed on was carbon dated at the University of Arizona, and it was carbon dated to the early 15th century, so 1404 to 1438, roughly.
0: Uh-huh. And so— One note on how carbon dating works, of course, is that Carbon dating is used to date things that were at some point alive, or at some point had carbon from carbon dioxide in the atmosphere fixed into them, mm-hmm. uh, because a certain because a certain known proportion of this carbon is radioactive. It decays at a known rate, so therefore you can tell basically if it comes from a thing that was once alive. When did the thing that it was made out of die? Right. When did it stop incorporating new? Gas from the atmosphere into itself. So you could say that it could have been no earlier than this time that the document was produced, but it could possibly have been later that the document was produced, just as long as the vellum was actually this old.
1: Yeah, it kind of depends on how long the vellum was sitting on the shelf, right? Yeah. Also, it's bound in goat skin, though it also seems to have once uh, had a wooden cover based on some uh, of the details uh, in the manuscript.
0: Yeah, I think it's had different binding yeah. over the centuries. Uh, now, there used to be some theories that this was a modern forgery, maybe by the very book collector it's now named after, who we'll discuss later on. But that really seems unlikely now, given that it has been carbon dated to the 15th century, right?
1: Yeah. Now in terms of the author, uh, well, that's part of the, the unknown origins here. Nobody signed it. Yeah, uh, handwriting analysis has suggested as few as 2 or many or as many as 8 writers, which of course I mean, wouldn't really be that uncommon for a, a you know a book of this time period. Okay, but at least the illustrations are signed, right? No, no, no. nobody knows who, the, who made the illustrations. yeah, uh, you know, the origin is ultimately unknown and when it comes to, you know, copies, this this is it. This is the one copy of the Voynich
0: Manuscript. Now, we mentioned, of course, that Voynich, that what we call it now is the Voynich Manuscript, and that name comes from a modern person, not from, you know, a medieval person. So what this book was originally called was? Well, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, unknown.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's had various sort of catalog numbers along the way. But, uh, you know, as we'll we'll come back to, Voynich refers to uh, Wilfrid Michael Voynich, uh, and it uh, dates back to 1912. So given the history of the book, uh, call it the, it's, it's, its current name is is relatively
0: recent. I think maybe we should take a quick break, and when we come back we can discuss more of the mystery of this fascinating text. Shout out to
1: Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like?
1: Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny
0: nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, we're back. So we're talking today about the Voynich manuscript, a classic enigmatic text, to believe now to be from the fifteenth century or so, due to carbon dating. Uh, but we don't know who wrote it. We don't know where it came from. We just know it sort of shows up at one point in history, and then trades hands for a while until it resurfaced around nineteen twelve. Now, if you have never browsed through this book, do yourself a favor and just pause the episode and go do that now. A scan of it is – or, you know, obviously not if you're driving or whatever, but uh, – Then just get the audio book. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wouldn't that be great? An audio version of the one Yeah, amazing. We got to cash in on that. Uh, But so you can look it up on the Internet. There's a full scan of it that's hosted on archive.org. You can flip all the way through the book. I would say it is almost a necessary experience, just the same way that if you have the means, you should try to travel and, like, expand your mind through seeing other cultures. If you have the Internet, you should try to expand your mind through this esoteric document.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, this stuff like this is the reason we have the internet. That's one of the benefits of the internet is being able to, you know, a document like this can be accessed by everybody.
0: Yeah. Now there are a few things we can If we're going to be chasing the mystery of who created this document, can it be translated? What does it mean? Uh, we, we should look at a few other facts about the text itself. So it's in a script that is clearly written from left to right and from top to bottom, so much like English or like many other European languages. But not all languages are like this. Arabic is not like this. Urdu, Farsi. I mean, there are a bunch of examples uh, of languages that go from the right to the left. So it is probably not drawing from that kind of tradition unless they just switched it for no reason. Now, another fact that might seem interesting to us about the text is that there are no punctuation marks But it turns out that's not necessarily all that interesting given the time from which it comes because it's extremely common in older documents in many languages for there not to be punctuation. Another thing is that there are no chapter markings or subheadings, but based on the illustrations – It's clear that there are sections that appear to be about different subjects, if they're about anything. And I think maybe we should talk about some of those different sections of the manuscript to try to help us understand it.
1: Absolutely. Well, the the first half of the book is the the herbal section, and it's full of botanical illustrations.
0: You could say that. Yeah, I mean, they clearly are supposed to be plants. But we should stress that while some of the illustrations of plants look kind of like plants you would recognize. I'm not necessarily saying they are illustrations Mm. of real plants, but they at least look like terrestrial plants. Some of these illustrations do not look like terrestrial plants. Some look like green ice snakes from the methane lakes of Titan or like strange constrictor caterpillars from the heart of a comet. (laughs) Truly weird alien drawings, things that – are sort of green and look like they have leaves, but also have what look like tentacles or eyeballs.
1: Yeah, they they are strange to behold. And this is the
0: most normal section of the the, the manuscript. Yeah, it is. Uh, So the German computer scientist, Klaus Schme, who uh, wrote a 2011 article for Skeptical Inquirer about the Voynich Manuscript, Uh, I'm going to refer back to that article quite a few times, Uh, but but he was writing about this section and he writes that none of the illustrations of plants in the document have been conclusively identified by botanists. So nobody's been able to look at that and say, yep, that is definitely a geranium. One theory by the botanist Hugh O'Neill claimed to have identified two of the illustrations as the sunflower and the capsicum plant. And of course, capsicum is a genus of plants in the nightshade family that produce peppers. Hmm. Peppers are great, right? Except peppers are not European. So both of these plants did not spread to Europe until after contact with the Americas, which would date the document a little bit later. But there is not a general consensus that O'Neill's identification of these illustrations is correct. It's just not clear at all that these are actually drawings of sunflowers and pepper plants. So generally the botanical section is big ol' question mark. Some of them look like they could be real plants – but there's none you can point to, there there are none you can point to and say, yep, we know what that is.
1: Well, this trend kind of continues in the next section, which is the astrological section, which is full of circular illustrations that are often interpreted as as being perhaps astrological in nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, as, as pointed out by Josephine Livingston uh, in her uh, New Yorker article, The Unsolvable Mysteries of the Vonich Manuscript, Uh, which I'll I'll also refer back to. Uh, She says that to to call this section astrological is generous.
0: Yes, uh, because it doesn't. Now, there are illustrations in it that do seem to correlate to classic astrological imagery. But then again, there are depictions of like astronomical objects that don't appear to correlate to anything. Uh, For about eight or nine years now, I should just say. I've had a page of the Voynich manuscript pinned up on the backboard of my desk at work. I don't see it as much now because now it's under the the raised part of my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a page from what is believed to be the astrological section. Specifically, it's a page that just has a bunch of concentric circles of these untranslatable words – between magus-looking dudes sitting in buckets or dunk tanks or something with stars coming out of their fingertips, and they're all ringed as if in reverence around the figure of a prancing goat with a mouthful of green plant matter. And I figured that's a good enough metaphor as anything for the work we do. (laughs) All right.
1: The next section is often referred to as the balneological section. Right.
0: Uh, And, of course, that refers to the study or field of bathing, which <laughs> it, if that sounds like wait a minute, could there be a field of that? Yeah, in medieval texts, there were a lot of thoughts about bathing. There were thoughts about the restorative powers of certain types of waters mm-hmm. or mineral baths and all that kind of stuff.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's you know it's, it's an important subject. You're getting into the issues of hygiene which, of course, influence overall bodily health, public health, but also hygiene is, has long been intertwined with our ideas of,
0: of spiritual purity as well. Uh, now, you might think, okay, well, this section's got to be kind of normal because it's just depicting people bathing, right? Bathing can't get that weird. Uh, it This is maybe the weirdest section of all.
1: Yeah, because there are all these uh, images of nude female figures in pools of liquid I mean, or tubs of liquid, but also possibly like large oversized flowers. Mm-hmm. And then there's tubular plumbing that suggests plants or even like viscera of
0: some sort. Oh, you know? yeah. It's, it's a very strange section of the manuscript. The writing in this part, I noticed, suddenly gets very dense, whereas in previous pages there might have been a large illustration of, a, of the plant and then some small, you know, some lines of text around it. Here you've got some densely packed text and again, I, I want to stress that some of the illustrations of this section look like they could be referring to real-world objects and practices. Like some appear to just show nude women bathing maybe in mineral baths or in streams or in aqueducts or along waterfalls. But others show things that I don't even know how to describe. Like I've got an example here for Robert to look at that is it's like a woman standing in what looks like a giant instrument horn that's growing out of something. It's this the spreading horn that I think maybe is supposed to have water flowing in it. But then also growing out of this horn is like this alligator pod that yeah. – I don't know how to – I mean it's sort of green-gray – brown with like holes that have water coming out of them but like a
1: space tentacle with shower heads like yeah. bio shower heads
0: coming out of it with like ridged alligator scales on yeah. its back and and yeah like uh, like lotus like lotus pods that have water yeah yeah like it, 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 it almost
1: has kind of like a susian or even like a, a, a giger-esque quality to it
0: I was noticing in this section how much the Voynich manuscript – and I think this is not an accident. How much it reminds me of uh, another book that I've liked for years, the Codex Seraphininus. Oh, yes. Which is an entirely fictional – intentionally fictional encyclopedia created by the Italian artist Luigi Serafini in the late 1970s. I think it was published in 1981. Basically, it is like an artist's attempt to create a new Voynich manuscript type document. It's got a constructed language. Lots of alien illustrations of plants, animals, objects, and processes that don't exist on Earth. It's like an encyclopedia from another world. But that is basically what the Voynich manuscript sort of appears to be.
1: All right, so we've had plants. We've had possible charts of the stars and so forth. We've had uh, weird alien showers. And then at the the end here, this final section... Uh, is what, according to Livingston, seems to be related to practical instructions for the use of the mysterious plants from earlier. It basically looks like it has recipes at the end.
0: Yeah, and I think this breaks down into multiple sort of subsections. Like, there, it is believed that there, some parts of it are supposed to be pharmaceutical. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, they depict the creation of medicines and storage in vials, and other parts appear to be about cooking or something.
1: Yeah, uh, so it's just as mysterious as the rest of it, uh, but yeah, but at this point, the, the, you don't really encounter any illustrations. It's more, yeah, it's more textual in nature. Uh-huh. but uh, yeah, so this is the the book, and the, the book is is just so unique in its style. It does not seem to have any true surviving peers. It does not cleanly
0: fit with late medieval alchemical texts because certainly there are other weird texts. Oh yeah, I mean that's something we should point out. I mean if you're thinking. Well, how could a text be about plants and astrology and bathing and hygiene and medicine and cooking all at the same time? That's a weird combination of subjects. I would say actually this is not unusual at all for the time it was written. There were plenty of encyclopedia-type documents that collected diverse subject matter at the time. And there was a general blurring of the lines between science, medicine, magic, and household advice.
1: Right. I mean, if you were the, the type of individual that either wrote or contributed to the writing of a book, you likely had a lot
0: to say about various topics. Right. Or a lot to crib from earlier encyclopedias. I right. mean, a lot of times what you'll find in some of these medieval encyclopedias is A mixture of original observations with people like, I don't know, know, reproducing encyclopedia entries by Pliny or something, just saying like, and here's the ancient wisdom of uh, Scipio Africanus.
1: Yeah. I mean, it comes back to a quote uh, from Umberto Umberto Eco in The Name of the Rose, the observation that books speak to other books. Right. You know, that uh, translations from other books, ideas from other books. But it does not seem that there there were a lot of books, at least books that have survived you know that we're speaking to the Voynich manuscript. Like yeah. it, it it does seem to be this singular thing that's left out. That's, uh, you know, that's it doesn't really fit in with manuscripts of the period. Uh, you know, it's in many ways it's kind of like an outside context book, uh, at least to most of those who have viewed it over the last several centuries. Uh-huh. Um, of course, to be clear, many books of the past were lost. Many languages were lost. Whole cult- cultures have perished. So just because it's one of a kind now does not necessarily mean it was always one of a kind.
0: Yeah, there could have been a whole library of Voynich-type books that just all got lost except for this one. And then likewise, the
1: context of our texts are always fading away. I uh-huh. mean, that's why it's always instructive to, if you pick up, say, the works of William Shakespeare or, uh, you know, you pick up a copy of uh, you know Dante's The Divine Comedy. Mm-hmm. It it generally pays off to have some sort of reference guide if unless you were just schooled, say, in, in Dante's case in, like, you know, in, in medieval uh, culture and Italian politics and so forth, like you need something to help you make sense of all the references, right? Uh, you know, the, the the cultural context, any symbols that are trotted out,
0: uh, or the the religious context. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and a similar case can be uh, can be made for the arts. You know, there are th- some of the the stranger works of art from the past. Um, uh, you know, they they look extra strange to us. Because we generally don't have the same, you know, contextual understanding for the references and for the symbols, uh, you know, symbols and references that would have probably been known to the original intended audience. Like we are not the intended audience of of those works. And then I think, along with most theories regarding the Vonnegut manuscript, you can say that we are certainly not the intended audience of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, though there's at least one, I don't know, there's at least one theory that maybe supports the idea that that the way that we are reacting to the Voynich
0: manuscript is appropriate. But, right. we'll, but we'll get back to that. Right. We are going to go on to try to parse out the different theories that could explain its origin. All right. So I wanted to talk about a few more observations about the Voynich manuscript or the Voynich manuscript uh, from that article I mentioned earlier by uh, from 2011 in Skeptical Inquirer by the German computer scientist Klaus Schme. I, I thought it made quite a few... Good points. And one of the most interesting points it made, I don't know why this stuck out to me so much, but I I suspect we'll end up referring back to it. He pointed out that there are no visible corrections Mm. in the Voynich manuscript. And this is pretty strange for a document produced by hand. Think about it. Could you write out a document of 35,000 words in ink with no mistakes at all, no cross throughs or scratch outs? No, I mean, yeah, I mean,
1: it would certainly have, you'd have to be something that was just so, you know, wrote for you, that was just so, uh, you know, formed in your mind that you could just do it without any mistakes. Or it would have to be something where mistakes didn't matter, such as if you were just making it all up.
0: Right? Exactly, yeah. So I feel like this is a significant point because when you look at handwritten or hand copied documents from the ancient world, there are tons of emendations. You see word is scratched out or crossed through or or fixed. Uh, I, I mean, this is just common at a time when documents were handwritten instead of produced by a printing press or a computer.
1: Yeah, it took a lot of time to make these. It took a lot of skill. And paper was expensive. Uh, ink was expensive. Uh, it, ultimately, if you had to cross out a word, you crossed out a word.
0: Yeah, and humans are imperfect copying machines. Mm-hmm. Now, again, we don't know whether the Voynich manuscript is an original document and it's like the original copy from the author or it's a copy of another document. I would say this this to me very much argues against it being a copy from another document. Just because, I mean, scribes scribes make mistakes. It, it, you're going thirty five thousand words. You're going to make some mistakes and end up having to scratch them out and, and rewrite the word.
1: Yeah. So so this would this would seem to argue for the idea that this was. If not one of a kind, like this was at least a singular piece, right?
0: Yes, or it might go for one of the theories we'll talk about later on, the, the, the theory that there is not actually a meaning or message in the text. But then again, there are arguments against that, so I, we should not get committed to that uh, that that end point. Another thing that Schmeid points out is that uh, people have tried to source the book by looking at the astrological imagery in it, but this hasn't really turned up anything solid either. But a, a great note he he has is that some researchers believe to identify illustrations in the book as Andromeda, like uh, uh, or as Andromeda fog, like the galaxy Andromeda or as the uh, Pleiades but again he says that this is just it's speculation kind of like the botanical thing you know where somebody looks at an illustration and says i think that could be a capsicum plant you know that could be a pepper but it's not clear enough that other scholars look at it and say yeah that's definitely what it is
1: and this is touching on a trend that we'll continue to discuss and and i mean this in the in a completely non-magical non-speculative way right but it does seem to be the case that the longer You stare at the Vonage manuscript, the longer you deal with it, the more likely you
0: are to find connections, the more likely you are to see things. It certainly encourages the conspiratorial cast of mind or the – well, I don't know. Again, there's a nice way to frame that and a a bad way to frame that. Mm -hmm. Like when, when you want to make connections between things. I mean on one hand, I feel like that's something I love doing on this show is making an, a, a connection you might not have expected between one idea or one thing and another.
1: Right, and it's how we solve, uh, that's how we figure out so many ancient, uh, uh, you know, works of uh, of art or works of literature mm-hmm. to go back to um, the Rosetta Stone. That is how we eventually were able to, to, to solve the riddle of Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, so, yeah, this is the exercise of figuring things out, but the Vonich manuscript seems remarkably um, resistant to such uh, unraveling.
0: Well, right, I mean, and it seems to encourage a perhaps unhealthy type of obsession also, where i mean if you take this principle of making connections too far of course where you end up is conspiracy theory world mm-hmm. right like you're just finding crazy uh, coincidences between things or you even get into numerology you know oh it looks it looks like there are you know 17 line breaks on this page and and that corresponds to the number of wounds on christ in this painting or something <laughs> you know that that kind of thing where You can find connections if you are determined to find connections, no matter how tenuous the link. Anyway, so to get back to uh, a few of these observations that I noted from uh, Shemay's analysis, one is that the clothing and hairstyles worn by the people in the illustrations in the Voynich manuscript seem to date the document to Europe in the period of about 1450 to 1520. But it's hard to be sure. Uh, But this is something that that is done with other documents sometimes. Like if you look at the illustrations of people, what they're wearing, how they wear their hair, that will tend to correlate to certain styles from certain periods and places in history. Uh, Shemay points out that the average word length in the document is about four to five letters – and this doesn't help us a whole lot because that be, could be consistent with a number of European languages. It just sort of makes it look like, yes, this is plausibly a language. <laughs> <laughs> but there there are some other things. Like one is that it has fewer recurring words uh, than would appear to be expected for a natural language. And this sort of argues against the idea – of the text being a, a simple letter substitution. But then again, maybe if it is a real language or if it is something in code, it's not a simple letter substitution. Maybe it's a more complex type of cipher. But ultimately, Schmay concludes that no theory has held up under scrutiny yet, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great place to be because now we get to discuss them. <laughs> Absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're going to take
1: another break. And when we come back, we are going to first take us, take us through the known history of, of the Vonage Manuscript, like where, when it first occurs and some of the key points in history that we're, we're you know, relatively sure of. Okay.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save.
1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a Gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited to availability in select areas. Visit at and slash Hypergig for details.
0: All right, we're back. All right, so as we've mentioned before, we don't know who created the Voynich Manuscript. That is one of the great mysteries. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know... If it was the origin, if the ver- version we have now is the original copy or if it's a copy of something, we don't know for sure. But at some point in history, this document just shows up. And, and I guess that's where we should dive in. So we're going to dive in in the 16th century.
1: Right. The year is 1586. And this is when the manuscript first pops up in the court of Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II of Bohemia. Uh, who by my most accounts was an eccentric uh, monarch yes. which is not it's not hard to be an eccentric monarch monarchy tends to invite uh, eccentricity uh-huh. and uh, and but but this is an individual who's very interested in the occult and alchemy and kept a, a great library and i've also read was was very fascinated by by giants and dwarves as well
0: yeah he apparently collected little people that seems like a a strange kind of medieval monarch fascination, yeah. or I guess a Renaissance monarch here.
1: Yeah. So in many ways, is weird is a weird guy, but he's also sort of the character that you would expect from a medieval monarch,
0: right? So the the this document shows up in his possession,
1: right? And the we are not sure who sold it to him, uh, but the, the 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 unknown seller sold it for six hundred uh, gold ducats. And, uh, Is that ducats or ducats? cats uh, <laughs> I think it's got to be ducats. Ducats. Uh, I like thinking do-cats. Do-cats. Yeah. Uh, well, I always, I always think ducats. So 600, 600 gold anyway, any way, to put it more in like Dungeons & Dragons uh, okay. uh, level.
0: Now, this came with like a certificate of authenticity, right?
1: Yeah. It, essentially, it came with a letter stating that it was written by Roger Bacon. Now, ah. Roger Bacon, as we already alluded to, uh, was a Franciscan friar uh, who lived 1219 through 1292, roughly. And uh, he was also said to be a wizard. Uh, of course, this is kind of common with with learned individuals in, uh, you know of, of that time, right? Like uh-huh. later on, there are stories about oh, they are, not only were they learned, but perhaps they had powers as well.
0: Well, as we've discussed on the show many times, in the medieval period and the Renaissance period, there was a significant amount of blurring between the lines of science and magic. The, right. you know, people who were genuinely making scientific observations about the world and about natural phenomena also sometimes believed in demonology and and just kind of like grouped all this knowledge together
1: yeah i mean but at any rate bacon was an individual who in many ways he was an early advocate of what would become the scientific method yeah Uh, empiricism yeah Uh, on the the other hand you know he, he was also interested in codes and secrets and uh And certainly later on became very associated with the occult, became sort of a focus of of occult interest.
0: Now, we've already mentioned that modern scholars do not think that the Voynich manuscript was written by Roger Bacon, and it also seems almost conclusively argued against by the carbon dating of it, which put it in the 15th century.
1: Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, about the only thing you could make a case for would be what if, if Roger Bacon had written it and this was like a copy of that text. Right. And, but then we lost all references to the original text, uh, you know, more leaps of, uh, of believability there. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, pretty, pretty much nobody is saying that Bacon had anything to do with the Vonich manuscript other than him being cited in this letter that accompanied it on sale to uh the holy roman emperor
0: so it'd be like if you showed up with a document and and you you know it's a weird document that nobody can read and you just said uh George Washington wrote this. Right, you can easily see how attaching the name of a famous person to something could make the could get you more money for it.
1: So Rudolf II was, you know, the, the type of individual who was, you know, very excited to to obtain this document. Right, uh, he he probably put some of his best minds to, to figuring it out, but nobody was able to crack it. He was a 16th century redditor, definitely.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he's on the case.
1: <laughs> but uh but nobody was able to figure it out. You know, it eluded experts of the time just as it has always eluded experts. So, he it ends up being passed on uh to a botanist uh by the name of uh, Jacob um Horiki, I think. The Latin name would be uh, uh Jacobus uh, Sinapius. Syn- uh but it was passed on to a botanist essentially because it does contain a number of what seem to be botanical illustrations. Right. And then uh, the the botanist keeps it for 20 years, uh, and uh, during this time, Rudolf himself dies in 1612, and then the book passes on to an unknown person who keeps it for yet another 20 years. Uh-huh. And then in the 1620s, the book enters the possession of Athanasius Kircher, who lives 1602 through sixteen eighty and this is this is another just fascinating character, yeah. Uh, a German scholar and polymath who uh, who uh, also set out to translate Egyptian hieroglyphics at one point. Uh-huh. And his assumptions ended up being you know incorrect, but he actually made some correct connections uh, between uh, the, uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphics and the, and the Coptic languages. Uh-huh. He also studied Chinese language as well as various artificial languages. Hmm. His letters show that he was quite interested in this particular book uh, prior, to, uh, prior to obtaining it. But then five years after acquiring it, he published a universal study of artificial languages and apparently makes no mention of uh, the Monich manuscript. So presumably it perplexed him uh, just as it perplexed so many others. That's
0: interesting. So he's interested in this book. He's interested in artificial languages that would make it seem like either he did not conclude that this was an artificial language Mm -hmm. or that he had to stay silent about it for some reason.
1: Well, and this is just my take. I wonder. Roger Bacon's people. <laughs> I would think that maybe another reason would be if he could not figure it out. Like it, it. He didn't mention it because who wants to be the expert on artificial languages and say, uh, you know, I couldn't crack this.
0: Well, right. He could have the Isaac Newton uh, mentality, where you know Isaac Newton said, like, here's what I've figured out. As for these other, as for the cause of gravity, the underlying mm-hmm. cause, he just said, I do not feign hypotheses. <laughs> now, you, can, uh, you can kind of respect that. Yeah. Now I,
1: I do think it's something we should come back and discuss artificial languages at some point on the show because it is, it is fascinating to to realize that here's this book uh, on the study of artificial languages and of course this is centuries uh, before uh, you know we encountered Klingon or Dothraki or any of the or uh, Esperanto right uh, so it would be fun to come back to that
0: well I've actually thought about the idea of covering uh, artificially invented languages on invention on our other yeah. podcast. That would be a good one. So keep an, in. keep an eye out over there. Invention,
1: the other podcast that we do, you can find it at inventionpod.com. Uh, you can <laughs> subscribe uh, wherever you subscribe to your podcast. It is uh, it is human techno history,
0: one invention at a time. All right. So Athanasius Kircher, he's got the Voynich manuscript. And what happens to it then?
1: Well, he has it for a while, but then he becomes a Jesuit monk and he gives away all of his earthly possessions, mm. which includes his books. And so his, li- his library and the Vonich manuscript itself lands in the library of a Jesuit uh, seminary, which I, I believe is a, a Collegio Romano, uh, just south of Rome, and it remains there for something like 250 years. Wow! Though, according to Livingston, the book, quote, appears to have bounced around Prague for a while. In 1639, a person named... Uh, Baricius described it as a is quote a certain riddle of the Sphinx, <laughs> a piece of writing in unknown characters, uh, unquote, and guessed that quote the whole thing is medical, unquote. The book's historical trail vanishes in 1670 up until the time that Voynich purchased it,
0: and that's from that New Yorker article. Vonage. Yes, that's from the New Yorker piece. Okay, so then we get up to the 20th century, and this is when it shows up with the guy actually named Voynich or yes. Voynich.
1: Yet another fascinating, weird individual to enter into the history. And we haven't even covered some of the other weird individuals
0: that factor into its history. So it ends up in the uh, sort of along with a purchase of other books uh, in the hands of this eccentric book dealer named Wilfred Michael Voynich.
1: Yeah, uh, who lived 1865 through 1930. And yeah, he publishes uh, the entire library and, uh, and it ends up being moved to America. And this, of course, includes the book that would take his name. Right. So, yeah, Polish-born, he's an interesting fellow to say the least. He he allegedly knew 20 different languages, was at one point investigated by the FBI for possessing Bacon's cipher, uh, an actual cipher for creating coded messages that was devised by Roger Bacon, just to bring Roger Bacon back into everything. Uh And he even apparently sold a forgery to the British Museum uh, at one point, though perhaps by accident.
0: Yeah. There, uh, there are whole story. He was a very uh, well traveled, adventuring individual. At some point, I think he was sent to a prison in Siberia for his political activities. Uh, he somehow escaped to England at some point and, and became a book collector. In that, uh, that uh, Josephine Livingston article, mm-hmm. she talks about this story that he would he would delight in showing off his wounds to yes. people, and he would like lift his shirt up and he would say, "Here by sword, here by bullet." Uh, But yeah, so uh, Voynich is a really interesting guy. And at one point in hyping his manuscript, this is also quoted in, in Josephine Livingston's piece, he was talking to the Times and he said, when the time comes, I will prove to the world that the black magic of the Middle Ages consisted in discoveries far in advance of 20th century science. And I think this speaks to a certain kind of attitude that documents like this inspire and other historical mysteries, all kinds of things, you know, the Antikythera mechanism or Mm. untranslated documents. Anytime you've got this object from history that seems to contain information or learning or indicate information or learning but is not fully solved at the time people are looking at it, it tends to, to make people want to go toward these almost conspiracy theory level ideas of like lost knowledge and and, you know, like, like ancient aliens kind of territory. Right. Why do we have such a tendency in those directions? Like why why is it – why are our brains wired to go to that conclusion rather than like, oh, here's a strange document and code?
1: Well, I mean I guess at one level, you know, we look to the modern age and we 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 had, we tend to regard our current scientific technological understanding of the world as superior to that of the past. Uh-huh. Um, you know by and large i mean certainly there are areas where and we've discussed some of these in the show where we can point to things in the modern world that are perhaps inferior to ways of dealing with things in the past you know generally things that are more cultural yeah. or interpersonal uh but we we tend to think you know when it comes to like figuring out how the world works then especially the natural world like today is the day and uh, never have we had a greater understanding and yet at the same time there are things that we do not understand about the world yet. And there are things, particularly details from the past, details from history that we can never fully understand, you know, that uh-huh. are going to just remain, you know, gaps, essentially gaps in the fossil records
0: of uh, of our, our literary and historical uh, uh, legacy. I've said this on the show before, but I remain committed to a, to a middle position here between the sort of the condescending modern idea that looks at the past and says, Psh. Ancient and medieval peoples, they were just stupid. They didn't know anything Mm -hmm. versus the one on the other hand that tends toward believing in some lost golden age, you know, ancient lost knowledge that far surpasses our own. I think the reality is that it's not like there is an ancient lost golden age. There wasn't an Atlantis where they had flying cars and stuff like that. It's more like that. People in the past were struggling with limitations that we don't face. They, had, they didn't have the technology we have, but they were also incredibly smart. They were super clever and came up with amazing workarounds and methods for things using the limited technology they have. This is what I always think about, you know, the classic construction of the pyramids uh, example. It's like, no, it doesn't mean that they had, like, alien technology. It just means that, like, these are smart people and they had to figure out how to solve big problems with limited tools.
1: I think also we sometimes fall into this trap of thinking thinking about the you know our modern world's contemplation of the past is kind of a battle yeah. between present and past like yeah. the past is an enemy to be defeated in our attempt to understand it We kind of make an adversary out of it. And I guess part of that is maybe like, you know, maybe this part of it is just found in all cultures where the past is something an enemy to be overcome. Maybe it's part of the colonial legacy or maybe it's because of Indiana Jones, you know, (laughs) with – uh, you know, this idea of somebody like, like physically combating the past in right. order to acquire its secrets. And then if something is resistant to this assault, mm-hmm. then it must, uh, it, it must have some sort of secret knowledge. It yeah. must, there must be something more than uh, like the fault cannot be our own. It must be some hidden power of the past.
0: Mm, that's interesting. All right. Well, we got to get back to what happened to the Voynich manuscript.
1: All right. So it was in Voynich's possession. Uh
0: And then he
1: dies and it passes to his widow, Ethel. And he died in 1930. Yes, 1930. And then it passes from Ethel to a close friend who then sells the book to an antique book dealer by the name of Hans P. Krauss in 1961. So Krauss, he tries to find a buyer for the book but cannot find a suitable buyer. What?
0: Nobody wanted it? Well, maybe
1: not for his price. Yeah, I don't know the details on it. I don't know if he was maybe if he was asking too much or he wanted to sell it to the right type of collector. I mean, who knows? But (laughs) not somebody who's going to chop it up and make uh, make Voynich manuscript sausage out of it. I don't know. I mean, he he ends up donating it to Yale University in 1969. Uh-huh. So uh, without without knowing the details of, of Krauss myself, and perhaps there's better documentation out there. You know, I would presume it was a situation of where he's like, I can't sell it to the type of client, uh, you know, the type of uh, you know purchaser I want, so I'll sell it to Yale. Or perhaps he reached the point where he's where he realized like this book is is a truly fascinating historical specimen it does not belong in the hands of a you know a rare occult book it doesn't need to be in another a, a rare book dealer's antique stash it needs to be uh with a university all
0: right well i guess that sort of brings us up to the modern period in which there's been a, an enormous amount of scholarship on the Voynich manuscript of people trying to both to to translate it or decrypt it which in some ways are are similar jobs Uh, Or people trying to, to figure out what it means or where it came from, who wrote it. A lot of these mysteries remain and there have been huge, hugely interesting attempts to solve these questions over the decades.
1: But on that note, we're actually going to have to call this episode and return in a second episode where we'll get into these various attempts to unravel the manuscript. In the meantime, you can check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You can also, of course, find uh, this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, wherever you do find us, uh, make sure that you rate and review us. That really helps us out. And, uh, you know, if you want to discuss this episode with other users, other uh, listeners, uh, there's actually a Facebook uh, discussion group uh, uh, called the the Discussion Module, Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. Uh, That's kind of a fun place to check out.
0: Hey, have you subscribed to our other podcast, Invention, yet? If not, go subscribe to Invention. Subscribe to Invention. Uh, Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Maya Cole and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to uh, get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind dot com.
2: Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.